This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, a film podcast where we see a new movie in cinemas or on a streaming service and compare and contrast it with pictures from days gone by in the same or similar genre by the same filmmaker or starring a prominent actor. I'm Karsten Knox. I write about movies at Flaw in the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm a culture writer at the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. On this episode, following last week's dive into Orson Welles, we're talking about Mank. This is a new movie directed by David Fincher. It's about the creation and the writing of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. We'll take a look at David Fincher's other cinematic offerings going back to Alien 3. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new movies and compares them to films from days gone by. And today we've got a new movie that is about movie days gone by. It's it's uh, Mank, directed by David Fincher, a black and white kind of retro look at the life of screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz uh, and his role primarily in the creation of one of the greatest cinematic works of all time, Citizen Kane, and his fairly tenacious relationship with its mastermind, Orson Welles. And this is uh, kind of a personal project for director David Fincher, which is unusual for him because I don't think his uh, projects are necessarily all that personal (laughs) Uh, going through his filmography, which we will do over the course of this film. But in this case, it's based on a screenplay written by his dad, Jack Fincher, who was also a journalist. And uh, in this case, it's a look at the life of this rather extraordinary man who worked within the Hollywood system even as he was kind of disdainful of it and uh, had kind of a low opinion of the work that he did. And uh, it's and somehow managed to become embroiled in this film that, of course, uh, we talked about uh, on last week's show when we looked at the films of Orson Welles. And uh, in this case, it was just one of those weird, magical meeting of minds, minds that didn't necessarily... Um, mesh the way that uh, you think they might on a project of of that kind of scope and uh, importance but uh, it's 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 interesting to hear his side of the story and now of course Mankiewicz's involvement in Citizen Kane has been hotly contested over the years uh in the 70s Pauline Kael kind of went to bat for Mankiewicz and his role in the film versus uh Orson Welles complete and total control of Citizen Kane and so the, and there's been a lot of debate about her take on his role in the film and obviously Mank is focused primarily on Mankiewicz and his role because of his um his friendship with Marion Davies and uh, Charles, uh, rather William Randolph Hearst, not Charles Foster Kane, he's fictional. William Randolph Hearst, <laughs> the newspaper magnate, who was one of the inspirations for the character of Citizen Kane. And his uh, being part of the in crowd in Hollywood and in that elite kind of social circle that informs the story of Citizen Kane. And it's hard to deny that his, uh, his contribution to the film is important. In the film, we see him fighting for the co-screenwriting credit with uh, with Orson Welles, and uh, it's also kind of the peak of his career. Uh, he, as we see from the movie, was a self-destructive man. He was an alcoholic, and uh, you know, very flippant. As uh, as we see in the film, his uh, his brain often works faster 
than his his tongue does. He's basically always got a dry wit and a wet whistle. And as uh, more than one person refers to him, always the smartest guy in the room, sometimes to his own detriment. And here uh, in the film, he's played wonderfully by Gary Oldman, who um, really has that dissolute, drained, down at the heels kind of uh, kind of feel down to a T as uh, Mankiewicz dries out on at this ranch out in the middle of nowhere while he's uh, working on the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And and we get a lot of flashbacks uh, sort of mimicking in a way the structure, the story structure of Citizen Kane. And and we kind of see how he came from New York to Hollywood and made a name there while also making a lot of enemies in the process, including people like Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg, some of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And it, it's a fascinating portrait. And, and, and Fincher you know, really, I think, uh, is also injecting some of his own views of Hollywood and the film business into this portrait. And, uh, you know, he's he's never really held back on his views about the, the whole system of, of making movies and the involvement of producers and, and uh, people from the front office and that kind of thing. And here he gets to kind of unload a lot of that baggage in the form of this portrait of a man who uh, was always at odds with the industry that made him uh, made him a person of note and a, a person of means. Yeah, I, uh, I watching this movie, I started to ask myself, why would David Fincher do this? I mean, aside <laughs> from the fact that his dad wrote the script, and the, it, as you said, it's kind of a, it must be a personal project for him. But this isn't necessarily the kind of movie that David Fincher makes. You know, he he does make a lot of movies about serial killers, about murders. He he likes crime dramas. That's kind of his bread and butter. But it also occurred to me rewatching a bunch of his movies that including The Game, Panic Room, The Social Network, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl. There's a huge swath of his career has been devoted to telling stories about the suffering of the wealthy and entitled. So in that regard, <laughs> Mank is actually right up his alley uh, because certainly, uh, you know, William uh, Randolph Hearst is enormously successful and it's it's kind of it's funny he kind of haunts the film this character played by charles dance but uh you know even we're seeing him through the eyes of this screenwriter this perpetually soused screenwriter uh herman j mankowitz and uh and there's a great supporting cast here too i i really liked the sort of ensemble um tom burke plays wells uh Tom Pelfrey plays Joseph Mankiewicz, his Mank's long-suffering, uh, his brother, who's also a sort of a Hollywood player, and his wife, played by Tuppets Middleton, an actor who we've seen a lot of lately. Uh, and then, uh, you know, all the, the, these other, ca- the cast of people who are helping him write the screenplay. So you sort of flat, flip between the date, the sort of current day, such as it is, I guess in the early 19, or late 1930s, and then you know, we keep flashing back to years past and, and with a helpful sort of like typed, um, uh, you know, like as if it's being typed in a typewriter, the the time and date and, and the place mm-hmm. of where we're flashing back to. I thought that was quite, quite helpful. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a gorgeous looking film. It, it, it really has it. I think it helps to know a little bit about Orson Welles and about Citizen Kane. I think it, you're watching it, you're more likely to get engaged if you know something about what went on then and about the the history the hollywood history you know it helps to care about hollywood in the 1930s and 1940s i guess that's what i'm saying but yeah it's one of those movies where i was fascinated by the structure and about the storytelling and and really it's also about how mank is someone who 
seems very cynical and, and, you know, he's a Hollywood player, but he has been able to hang on to his integrity. And it's about what people are willing to do. Are they, are they willing to sell out their, their values and their, their morality for the sake of money and power? And that's kind of what the movie is about, I think. Um, and I'm, I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the dialogue. I mean, very witty dialogue, great performances. But in the days since I saw it, I went to see it in cinemas before they recently closed again here in uh, in Halifax due to the pandemic. I, I It hasn't really aged very well in my memory. I feel... It almost feels more like an academic exercise. I did. I guess I didn't care as much about the characters as as I I felt like I should have. Um, at the same time, I, I am recommending the film because I think it's very cleverly done and it's and it's very demanding. Like keep up with it to keep up with all the stuff that's going on. And the I mean, the script must have been like two hundred pages or more. It's just it's so wordy <laughs> that uh, I, I enjoy that challenge. And I think a lot of people will, but. But yeah, I, there is something about it that that despite the fact that it's a, it's clearly a personal film for Fincher, I don't know that I felt personally that engaged. What what did you think of it? Uh, yeah, it's it's not without its faults for sure. It, at times, it does feel a bit like a history lesson, uh, and uh, you know about the most mythologized movie of all time. I guess um, I think that's pretty safe to say. And uh, and yeah, you you do kind of need some sort of working knowledge of. Well, you certainly need to have seen Citizen Kane, which is hard to imagine somebody watching this who hadn't seen Citizen Kane in the first place, but also to know some of the backstory, just to know what you're in for, because you're not really getting um, a ton of uh, of Wells. I mean, Tom Burke is there as, as young Orson Wells, and you forget how young he was at the time all this was going on, and he's, you know, butting heads with Mankiewicz, a guy who's been around the block a few times. I mean, uh, you know, he's been working in film since the silent days, and... Um, you know, and, th- and that that a little background certainly does help. And I don't know that we necessarily understand Mankiewicz uh, terribly well uh, through the film. We just kind of accept him as as this guy who sees him as being above this industry in which he finds himself, and uh, you know, and just you know doesn't really give a flying f about uh, a lot of the stuff that he's working on. But you know, at the same time, he's he's committed to his craft of what he's doing. Uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to do substandard work, but at the same time, uh, you know, we just see the wordsmith um, kind of unspooling in front of our eyes. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I chalk it up to Gary Oldman's performance as being the thing that holds us in, but it's, it's, it is funny that, uh, that Fincher, a, a director who is so concerned about human psychology and what makes people tick, doesn't necessarily get at the heart of what makes uh, Mankiewicz tick or why he is so self-destructive and, and, you know, manages to succeed in spite of himself. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, at the same time, you're, as you go on for the ride, it's one of those movies where I think in the middle of it, you're on for the ride and you're going to just go where it goes. And I think there is a lot there that, uh, that, I mean, I personally enjoy. (laughs) There are elements that I couldn't help but appreciate. For instance, I don't know if you noticed this. I watched the film in the cinema. I think you watched it on a screener at home. But there are cigarette burns yes. in the upper right corner of the end of scenes. Did you notice that? Oh, I couldn't help but notice those. <laughs> I actually, in my notes, I actually have it written down. I have Q marks written in all caps in my, my notes here. Yeah, so for people who are listening to this who don't know what we're talking about, uh, 
on old celluloid, there used to be these marks in the uh, in the prints, right in the upper right corner, to indicate to people, I guess projectionists, that they need to change the reel, and uh, that was just a part of of you know watching movies back in the old days when movies were projected from from uh, on film. And uh, so anyway, obviously this was shot. It's presented in digital. There, there's no need for that. But <laughs> but uh, Fincher includes those uh, for, you know, just kind of a little in-joke, I guess, for people who are paying attention. It, it's also a callback to Fight Club, of all things. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's they, true. There's a, a Tyler Durden actually gives a little lecture on the nature of what what projectionist would call cigarette burns uh, the little holes in the frame that tell the projectionist when it's time to do the changeover from one projector to the next uh, between real changes so you know it's, it's just funny to see that uh, that reference pop up in mank <laughs> it's, yeah it's kind of a kind of a weird nod to a completely different movie with a completely different tone and and, and theme but um I, I guess in that sense there are there are some of the themes that connect this to Fincher's work, that bleak view of humanity, in this case, a fairly bleak view of the movie business and the people that run it and uh, their motives for uh, for making films in the, in the first place. Uh, we, we get the, the, the fable of the organ grinder's monkey, uh, which, uh, which Hearst tells to Mankiewicz as he's kind of giving him the bum's rush out of San Simeon when he uh, makes a scene at a, at a big dinner party. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, the slave who thinks he's a star basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, which, which is kind of a, it's kind of a, a very Fincher kind of moment, but it's also kind of a very Orson Welles moment because you think of that fable, uh, in, uh, Mr. Arcaden, uh, of the the scorpion and the frog, right? (laughs) Right. You know, it's the same kind of storytelling that Welles liked to employ. So, there's definitely a lot to enjoy the, about this film. And of course, the more you know about Wells and you don't necessarily need to know a lot about Mankiewicz to enjoy the film, but the more you know about the period and Wells and Citizen Kane and so on, the more you're going to get out of this film. Um, it's, uh, you know, it feels like kind of an odd project for right now, but uh, it was it was a great excuse to revisit Wells films too. That <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We enjoyed the hell out of it for that reason. Uh, I also, another thing I wanted to mention is, uh, is that it features, uh, there's a little political element yes. to it as the staunch Republican uh, mayor and, and uh, you know, the, the studio is willing to go these lengths to sabotage the political ambitions of author and socialist political candidate Upton Sinclair, who here's he's not in it much, but he's played by Bill Nye, the science guy, who uh, apparently is a distant cousin of Upton Sinclair, which wow. is part of the reason why he was chosen to take the, the role. But uh, but I, I don't know much about Upton Sinclair, except for the fact that he wrote the book Oil, which was adapted to be there. There will be blood. The uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film. So you know that might be an interesting uh, double feature. Uh, Mank and There Will Be Blood, which uh, <laughs> have an interesting parallel. Uh, but uh, you know, thinking going back to the conversation about why it would be that Fincher would choose this film and what he personally, you know, how he personally may be related a little bit to Orson Welles or Mankiewicz's own experience, Fincher actually isn't a writer. This is something I just sort of discovered by rewatching a bunch of his films. He is not the author of the films in some ways, but he is so, he has such a singular vision and a singular style as a director, it's easy to forget. And also because he chooses films of a certain kind, he, he has an interest in, you know, he, he, projects come to him and he's like, all right, this suits my my thematic uh, interest or my, uh, you know, as he, he says, he thinks people are, are, 
perverts. That's not, <laughs> and and you know, and he 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 really enjoys the darker sides of human nature. So, uh, um, you know, going back to his first feature film, Alien Three, and how it was, he really struggled to get it made, and how he he dealt with a lot of studio interference, and how the film was very much compromised. Um, I guess it's no surprise that Fincher, who is brilliant, there's no doubt that he's brilliant in in many many respects, would feel a kinship to these. Um, these creatives back in the thirties trying to get their vision realized and uh, dealing with all sorts of uh, interference. Um, but yeah, I went back. I also watched a bunch of his music videos from the eighties. I didn't realize how many iconic music videos Fincher had made from George Michael's freedom 90 to Madonna's Vogue um, Aerosmith's Janie's got a gun. I mean, he, he did all of these movies and they're, Pretty great. He still shoots uh, videos from time to time. He did Justin Timberlake and Jay Z's uh, suit and tie in the last few years. So uh, it's funny he keeps still keeps a hand in that world. But uh, yeah, Aliens Three. I know there are people who love the, the movie or and support it. I am not one of them. I, I thought it was a hugely disappointing. Um, and rewatching it again, it just didn't hold up much for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess we have to sort of pick and choose which movies we're going to talk about today, Stephen. We don't. I mean, I think there's. He's made a lot of movies in the last thirty years. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know that we're going to be able to get into all of them. No, I don't think um, so. But uh, I certainly yeah. watched most of them over the course of the last week and yeah, yeah. into that. Uh, I, I'm feeling a little grimy and ill at ease after watching <laughs> so many so many of those in a row. I don't recommend watching a ton of David Fincher all at once. It's not not an exercise that uh, should be undertaken lightly, for sure. No, no. And I mean, Seven. I mean, let's face it. Seven is what has one of the bleakest endings of all time in, in, in movie history. Uh, but, you know, again, he is very well known. So I don't think we're telling people anything they don't already know. No. I think we're probably better off trying to stick to some of his lesser known films. Um, but so and, and we also also already talked about um, Fight Club in our um, movies of 1999 episode, which so, so we, you know, we should probably just stick to, you know, the, the first rule of Fight Club, which, well, you know what that is. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, Alien 3 is worth some discussion, I guess, because it has been up for reappraisal in recent years. And I, I do think that I like it more than when I saw it the first time. But I, I think having watched it a few times at this point, I do... It's, its flaws are still pretty glaring and uh, his dissatisfaction with the film, you know, I guess is, makes it pretty apparent that it's its not a wholly satisfactory project on a, on a lot of different levels. And, I'd, you know, I, I think it's an interesting concept. I think uh, Sigourney Weaver is great as, you know, as this version of, of Ripley stuck on this prison planet. And it's got an amazing supporting cast, but it does bog down towards the end we lose one of its most interesting characters way too early um but maybe that's you know that's a nice little keep you on your toes kind of maneuver i suppose it's just so grim and grimy and the characters are are so indistinguishable for the most part you know apart from a couple of noticeable standouts you know just everybody's got a shaved head and most of the configs have this very similar kind of personality and all the dialogue is shouted uh, it's just, it, it, it kind of it kind of wears you down by the time it gets to its big finale. And there's also two different cuts of the film, neither of which is superior to the other, I don't think. So there are some better things about the assembly cut or what, they don't call it a director's cut because Fincher wasn't personally involved in it. But uh, 
you know, they, they do sort of embellish some plot points and, and add some character notes and that kind of thing. But they also add, there's, there's a bit of dodgy CGI that's added in that has not stood the test of time. And they've changed the ending slightly in a way that I don't prefer. Maybe some people do, but, uh, and I, I don't really want to say much more about that, but it's, it's, it's certainly a step down from alien and aliens, you know, worth, worth seeing if you want to do a big alien binge, but, but not necessarily a film that needs to be returned to over and over again. So today on Lens Me Your Ears, we are talking about the films of David Fincher, uh, having springboarded, spring, springboard, spring, whatever the, the past tense of a springboard is, uh, off of Mank, his new film, which is in cinemas, if cinemas are open where you are, or uh, uh, will be available on Netflix on the 4th of December, which is important to mention. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, it will be uh, coming to the streaming service very soon. Uh, so yeah, let's focus a little bit on some movies that maybe uh, from David Fincher that are maybe a little less seen or were were not as big hits as as some of his others. Um, I, I want to uh, point at the the game from 1997, um, and uh, again, an incredibly stylish thriller. Um, watching it, I watched it having not seen it probably since it came out, and I remember being kind of ambivalent about it when I first saw it in cinemas uh, more than 20 years ago. But uh, I know it has also garnered a certain amount of occult fandom. Um, I think there's a Criterion edition of the game. There is. Uh, there is, yeah. Uh, so watching it again, you know, I think what I enjoyed about it is what I enjoy about a lot of Fincher's films, just the craft that went into the making of it, the the careful positioning of, of camera work, you know, the, the movement of the camera. Uh, the story is basically uh, Michael Douglas plays a banker named Nicholas Van Orton. He's very wealthy, uh, lives in San Francisco. He's 48 years old. He's haunted by memories of his father who killed himself. He has a little brother named uh, Connie, played by Sean Penn, who offers him a gift on his birthday, something called Consumer Recreation Services, which sounds like something out of RoboCop. Um, anyway, it's a game that's specifically tailored for each participant. We provide whatever's lacking, <laughs> <laughs> which actually sounds a little creepy, but... Um, after this this meeting between these brothers, uh, strange, unexplained things start to happen to Nicholas. Uh, some of it's pretty funny. If you like to see uptight rich people suffer, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know that's that's a driving force for a lot of Fincher's uh, work, I would say. Uh, I, this feels like Fincher's Adrian Lyne film, if you know that filmmaker. It feels much more an '80s movie than a '90s movie. It's gorgeous to look at. Plenty of mood and tensions. It is, however, I think pretty clinical. I don't think you ever really care about Michael Douglas's character or mm, you know, anyone else really in the film. Um, it is, but it is fun. It, it's you know, Douglas puts on those suits, those power suits, and immediately he's recognizable as, as the sort of characters he played through the eighties and nineties from Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, Disclosure. You know, corporate, uh, unpleasant corporate dudes in exploitation thrillers. Um, you know, and, and that helps us sort of lock us in, I think. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I also noticed that um, there's a little bit of dialogue that's directly lifted from Blade Runner. Reaction time is a factor, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is interesting. It's like at one. That's when um, Nicholas is being tested by this this company to find out how much he can take in terms of his health and well being. And uh, but I'm also wondering whether or not they're testing if he has any feelings at all, because at a certain point you wonder. He's a pretty chilly character. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, there are other references. We were talking about Mank and about Orson Welles. Did you notice that when Nicholas wakes up in Mexico, at one point he makes up in Mexico and he's wearing a white linen suit? It reminded me of Touch of Evil. I don't know if you thought <laughs> of that at all or not. But, but you know, the Orson Welles references have been in Fincher's work going back a ways. Well, just that seedy side of the other side of the border, I think, is enough to, to bring up a uh, a touch of evil reference. I, I I find this is he's really diving into kind of film noir style and themes with this uh, with this film. There's a lot of other references to to things, um, you know, from from those films. Like, I mean, the thing I reminded of the most is um, uh, there's a great film noir called uh, DOA, where um, Edmund O'Brien has to invest. He's investigating his own murder because he's been poisoned. And he's he's trying to figure out who poisoned him, and and you know try and maybe you know get revenge or bring him to justice before he himself succumbs to the poison that he's been fed, and uh, which uh, is partially set in San Francisco, just like the game, which of course uh, San Francisco is the most noir city known to man. <laughs> so uh, you know I, I I find like he's he's really kind of delving into his influences in a way that maybe he doesn't so much in some of his other films. And it's, it's interesting to watch that. And of course it's a lot of film noirs about protagonists who find themselves stuck in circumstances beyond their control. They're at the mercy of fate and femme fatales and so on. And, you know, just trying to claw their way back to the surface. And, and the game is completely that, but with this twist of him being subjected to the whims of this, uh, very elaborate plot that's been set in motion not to harm him but to help him or enlighten him as the as the case may be you know and just watching the wheels turn is is kind of the fun of this film even though when there's multiple twists happening you get the feeling that nothing really bad is going to happen to michael douglas's character to nicholas van orton but uh but they sure do try to throw you uh, a bunch of loops along the way just to uh, <laughs> throw you off your off your guard yeah, they do, you know, and I, I think, yeah, the, the question is, is whether or not anyone's really under control, in control here, like, it, are, is this just a game or is there some other sinister, sinister motivation? And, you know, um, people should be aware that we probably will, there will be some mild spoilers here as we talk about these films, um, you know, that, that you may or may not have seen if you're, if you're listening. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I liked all of that, Um I, I liked uh, I liked the machinations, uh, but again, the thing about Fincher is is like his filmmaking style is so uh, thoughtful and it's so well choreographed that it there are pleasures in each of his films just based on his ability to craft a story, um, which I think brings us to Panic Room. Which of all the films that, that I rewatched this week of his, it's probably the one that I had remembered the least from originally had having seen it in 2002 and it's the one that felt most rewarding watching it again it's written by david coop 
who is one of the most successful screenwriters of the past 30 years in Hollywood movies, frequently partnering up with Steven Spielberg on projects like Jurassic Park and War of the Worlds. This film, Panic Room, is a Hitchcock-style thriller. There's a great moment that evokes Rear Window, I, I, I enjoyed, um, uh, about a, a recent divorcee and her teenage diabetic daughter who buy an enormous brownstone in New York City. The first night they're in there, three dudes break in looking for millions of dollars in cash stashed somewhere in the house by the previous tenant. Now, Fincher really leans into digital trickery with a bunch of very attention-grabbing but physically impossible camera moves. <laughs> some of that's pretty cool, but and because the special effects still hold up, but I, I did feel like some of those attention-grabbing shots are just that. They're just attention-grabbing for no other reason than just to prove that he can do them. Um, he doesn't do that quite as much anymore. Um, but what he does so well here is create an environment. After 20 minutes, we know exactly how this house is laid out, what's on each floor, and the suspense of the set pieces are incredibly well pitched. And in the leads, Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart as mother and daughter are both amazing. It's, so, it's funny to think now that Stewart would become one of the biggest stars on the planet years later. Um, and Foster does anxiety better than anybody. You know, when the camera focuses in on her face, there is nobody that, that evokes anxiety like she does. She just, you always know what's on her mind through her eyes and her expressions. And the, the burglars, Jared Leto is hilarious. Forrest Whitaker, I thought was pretty solid. And Dwight Yoakam is terrifying. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it's an unlike, unlikely bunch, I think, you know, as casting. And this is something else Fincher does really well, is he chooses, um, his casting is is so good, but he chooses people you don't, like in my head, I'm like, how did he think Dwight Yoakam was right for this part, the country star? But he actually has been acting off and on, and he's uh, he's really good. He's just, yeah, I mean, you know, he's... He's he's so good in this. He spends most of the film with a with a balaclava on, and yet he's terrifying. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> rambling on. Stephen, yes. Stephen, what did you make watching it again? It's funny, like a, a regular full time actor might not agree to do a role like that because of wearing a balaclava for three quarters of his time on screen. But obviously, you know, Dwight Yoakam is is uh, is not that kind of actor. I was, I always think back to Sling Blade, where it was right. probably the He'd done a bit of acting here and there, but that was the first time he really actually, you know, had a truly impressive uh, part to, to to chew on, I guess. But uh, yeah, this is the, the way that uh, the game was a uh, a modern film noir taken to the nth degree. This is uh, yeah, this is Fincher paying homage to his other one of his other major influences, Hitch, Hitchcock, as you pointed out, especially with you know things like Rear Window and so on. But I, I it's 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 amazing watching this film how smoothly it all comes together considering it was a fairly troubled production in a lot of ways, uh, in a way that, uh, maybe Fincher hadn't experienced since alien three with, uh, with various things going on behind the, the scenes, extending the, the budget and the shooting time. And, you know, Jodie Foster wasn't the original choice to play Meg Altman. It was supposed to be Nicole Kidman. And then she blew out her knee doing Moulin Rouge and couldn't do all the physical stuff that was required for this film. And so Jodie Foster came in just shortly before, production was about to start and uh and it's amazing like you know it's it, and it's amazing you know the physicality of what she has to do here is uh, she's so well suited to it and uh, and she's she's so believable i mean I, jody foster's generally pretty careful about the the projects that she picks and uh and here as as 
as the mom to Kristen Stewart, Sarah, I, you know, I felt they were really simpatico. They had just the right amount of kind of mother daughter affection, but also that kind of prickliness, you know, especially as, as the daughter's, you know, coming into her teen years and you get that, that friction that comes in at that time. I, I felt uh, that was fairly note perfect. And uh, the, the film really just, just moves like a like a locomotive it, it's you know the, after with within minutes of her you know getting into this brownstone we they have the quick setup to explain the layout of the building and the panic room itself and how that works and and once that's established you know fairly well with the great Anne magnuson and ian buchanan from twin peaks um to get all that in order um you know then it's just it's just off to the races and it doesn't let up and uh yeah it was it was a it was a lot of fun to revisit i mean some aspects of it the the some of the technological aspects of it and stuff you know kind of does date it back to 2002 when it came out but that's all pretty minor stuff although you know it, <laughs> i i did enjoy going through the the goofs uh segment for this film on imdb there's a lot of apparently there are a lot of experts in imdb land on uh thermodynamics and uh, and physics and <laughs> you know ex- uh-huh. ex- explaining why this this wouldn't work or that wouldn't work or you know david fincher doesn't know a lot about how fire works or you know it's like it, it's it's like the game if you if you really tried to think about every nut and bolt that goes into the film it just you know it just wouldn't be entertaining you'd really have to kind of give yourself over to the, the pace of the film and and the intricacy of it and and you know not let that stuff you know bog you down yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it you just gotta go with it, and uh, and there's a, there's a lot of that in in uh, Panic Room, and and uh, it was it was just fun to to be back in in that kind of space and be be uh, every beat of the story is there's no there's 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 so little fat in that script, and it, it just it uh, and and in in the construction of the film, I, I just felt like I was in the confident hands of a filmmaker who knew what he wanted and knew what he wanted to do right through it. Even if some of what he was doing seems a little bit outrageous now, uh, as you said, some of those, some of those digital moves and, uh, um, some of that feels, feels uh, a little, you know, wonky. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I still, yeah, I really, I think, um, panic room was the biggest surprise for me. Uh, now we should also mention, um, a film that, uh, Fincher made called Zodiac, which we brought up previously on our episode on serial killers. So maybe there isn't too much to say about it, but I know that, you know, it, there are some people, I know there are film fans out there who think The Prestige is the best Christopher Nolan film, and I, there are folks that probably think Zodiac is the bench, best Fincher film. I think they're both wrong, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's fine. You know, we can have a disagreement of opinions on on this. Uh, I I don't think that uh, that with, um, you know, with The Social Network and Fight Club and uh, and even with Panic Room that, uh, that Zodiac is ever going to... Uh, you know, win me over in the same way. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's a procedural. It's a great procedural. It's amazingly well-researched and well-shot. I mean, it it has all of the things that Fincher is so good at uh, in, on display with a great cast and a fascinating story. But it's also a procedural where, and here's a little bit of a spoiler, um, they don't, they, they uh, it's a serial killer movie where they don't really catch the serial killer. And I feel like emotionally, 
that is a uh, a problem for for the film. I feel like it it's it's the, by by sticking to the real facts of the story, we don't get an emotional payoff the way that I think we should have. In some ways, it's not as dark as Seven, where Seven the bad guy wins, but uh, it's still not as satisfying as I think it should be. But uh, but I don't. Know. I suspect Stephen that you have a different take <laughs> on this. Let let me. I'd like to hear what you think. Well, color me wrong because. I- I'm a big fan of Zodiac and it's a film I have no problem returning to over and over again. I think when I watched it uh, this week, it might've been my fourth time uh, watching this film. And I, I, I still get into it into a big way. Just, I mean, part of it is the fascination of the case. It's um, you know, I think prior to Mank was, this is first film based on uh, a real event, I think. Um, and you know, real life events and real life characters. And the Zodiac case is a, is a fascinating case. It's now like a lot of films that, you know, like JFK, you know, you, you glom onto a theory or um, an approach that may or may not be what a lot of people feel is what really happened. You know, I mean, here they, they, they put a lot of money on Arthur Lee Allen being the most likely suspect and not everybody feels that way. So you, you have to kind of put that aside and just enjoy that this particular perspective on the real life events. You, you mentioned that in seven, the killer wins and, and in Zodiac, the killer kind of wins too, because they never caught somebody who was identified as the Zodiac killer who operated in the San Francisco area in the late sixties and, and early seventies. And, and I, I just like the interplay between the characters. Uh, you know, I feel like Fincher's filmmaking power is at its height in this film and the way it, it draws you into this case and the moments of, of menace is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, Robert Graysmith, who's a political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle, who becomes completely obsessed by this, uh, by this serial killer case. And he's quite often way in over his head in terms of uh, his own investigation. Whereas, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery has all the, reporting skills to kind of look into this sort of thing. And yet he's a lot more flippant about it and more devil may care. And then uh, Ruffalo is the cop. I just like the, the, the trio of, of, of them with Anthony, Anthony Edwards, you know, as, as a strong support, but mostly it's, it's, it's Ruffalo, Gyllenhaal and Downey Jr. And, and their kind of triple play, I guess, uh, as those characters, I, I, I really enjoy that. And it's, you know, it's just a great portrayal of that era. I think, uh, you know, just so many different elements come together in a way that I find really appealing. Yeah, I, you know, you're right about the casting. They're they're really really good, and I do like the evocation of of uh, the '70s newsroom. I mean, it it really feels like this is Fincher's ode to all the president's men. You know, oh, very it's much. funny. Yeah. It's funny how we're we're in each of his movies. He's kind of um, you know calling back to certain movies or certain genres of the past, just kind of bringing them into the into the. Uh, into the present in, in an interesting way. Um, now, now, um, is le- for me the film I I appreciate the least of all of Fincher's films is probably the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I didn't go back to rewatch it because I am just I'm just not a fan of the film. But but uh, Stephen, I know you did. Uh, how was your revisit of the film? I mean, you know, Alien Three we can kind of forgive because of all the behind the scenes uh, snafus that kept it from being the film that he wanted it to be benjamin button is uh it's not a film i have a lot of love for <laughs> it's over reliance on kind of cgi created environments i think i know he's trying to do a fable and give it this kind of fairy tale 
feel, but I, I, it, to me, it just, a lot of it feels so overwhelmingly fake to a degree that uh, kind of pulls me out of the movie. Yeah. I, and as far as Brad Pitt's take on the character, I, I felt fairly uninvolved with it. It's, it's, it's like some alternate universe Forrest Gump or something like that. Like it's, I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Although, which is funny because uh, at one point, uh, Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden yells run forest run to a character in fight club <laughs> that he's just scared the living bejeebers out of. And and then, you know, here, here we are with a film that has very much of a kind of a dark forest gump vibe. And uh, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to, to shake that feeling uh, through the course of the film. I mean, some of it looks amazing. You know, the, the casting is interesting with people like a uh, Marashala Ali, shows up uh you know it's, it's great to see him in a role that you know i, I wouldn't have recognized in the first time around uh that i saw this film but it was nice to see him show up elias Coteus, you know is, is is great in a smaller role uh and uh jared harris is 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 oh a, yeah a right, of course. Role as, as captain mike the captain of the tugboat who uh who kind of takes uh, benjamin button under his wing and shows in the world i loved his performance but it's it, again it's a film that works best in bits and pieces and it's you know it was interesting to watch it again but i i don't know that it's a film i'm going to revisit again down the road hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at current films and compares them to films from days gone by. And today we're taking a look at the work of David Fincher, uh, in reaction to the release of his latest feature, Mank, which had a brief run in theaters, including some theaters here locally, before it shows up on Netflix on December 4th. And we're kind of going through the the back alley of his filmography. It's not that he has a ton of films, but there are certain films that we've talked about before, like Fight Club and so on. And uh, the next one is a film that we touched on briefly in our courtroom drama episode, but it's, it's worth... Uh, it's worth taking another look at, and that is The Social Network, the film about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founding of Facebook, uh, and uh, his sort of rise to power in the online tech world and what he sacrificed uh, in the process of getting there, whether he knew it or not, because uh, the portrayal of Zuckerberg here, of course, is as uh, as kind of a sociopath <laughs> and uh, the kind of character that, uh, as we've seen, David Fincher has uh, been obsessed with uh, pretty much throughout uh, the bulk of his film career. So uh, even though it's not necessarily about crime or murder or maybe not even necessarily suspense, um, there there are still uh, there's still themes that that fascinate Fincher uh, to be found here in, in the characters that we're dealing with in, in terms of Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Eduardo Saverin, his um, erstwhile friend and partner played by Andrew Garfield in a great performance. And um and also, he's got uh, one of his uh, one of his best uh, collaborators, I think, in terms of a screenwriter, and that's Aaron Sorkin, who uh, whose fingers are all over the story and the dialogue in a way that you don't usually get from a Fincher film. I, I, I find that uh, 
you know, that the, the Sorkin's rapid fire chatter is is clearly on display. And uh, it's it's interesting that uh, how this collaboration panned out, that that you can't uh, ignore his contribution in a way that, you know, usually usually the, the, the fingers of the screenwriter are, you know, confined to to the the story and the character development and and the dialogue is important of course but this is one of the the few times where you can clearly see the the media minds between director and screenwriter and uh i I think it pays off in in a way that's unique in fincher's filmography oh absolutely i mean I, i i chose the social network as the best film of the past decade. Uh, I am I am absolutely in love with this film, and it's just it is rewarded. It's one of those movies that rewards every time you go back to it because it's you realize how relevant it is. I mean, aside from our very digitized social media obsessed world, um, it's about power. It's about um, and it's about the meek inheriting the earth. Earth, you know this this character who is. Uh, Zuckerberg is both the antagonist and the hero of the film, you know, and, and that's something that's brilliant about it too. In one scene, you might be uh, rooting for him against the, you know, fairly obnoxious Winklevi twins, the, Vink- <laughs> <laughs> the Winklevosses, um, and then in another, you just see how obnoxious he is and how unpleasant he is to be a to be around. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that look into class in America, uh, into entitlement, into what it means to achieve the American dream in the 21st century and how compromised and screwed up all that is. And, um, you know, the, the, the subtle and not so subtle criticisms of Western oligarchy, uh, which replicates itself in, uh, generation after generation in these ivy gripped halls of academe, uh, you know, how, how, and, and about the friendships that are destroyed by these, these, uh, these, uh, this effort to, to, you know, achieve something, to be great, to, to get into the right club, to, to be cool, um, you know, uh, I, th- I think that um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg is amazing in this. Has made his career. Uh, Rooney Mara as well. She's not in it a lot, but she's very good in in the film. And uh, yeah, everybody. Army Hammer as the twins, <laughs> Tyler and Cameron yes. Winklevoss, who who you know apparently they digitally took his face from himself and put it on this other actor's body. So, you know, full marks to the other actor as well uh, for putting up with that. Um, but, uh, and even Justin Timberlake, he, br- he brings a certain charisma to uh, Sean Parker, who, uh, you know, the Napster founder is another character who I think a lot of people know. I, I you know, you mentioned uh, Andrew Garfield as Eduardo Severin. I like him a lot. Andrew Garfield is a very likable actor, and I think he's good in the film. But uh, it's funny. He's the only really open-hearted good person in this whole story in some ways. And But he's kind of a non-entity. He just has a really good hair. He's very smart. But he's too trusting of a guy that the rest of us could see was an enormously self-involved, entitled you know, prick. And, uh, and he's very loyal to him in a way that makes him, we're always a step ahead of him, which makes him seem kind of, it's, it's an interesting twist that the character that's the most likable in this film seems like the biggest fool. 
anyway, uh, all of that is makes this a, a fascinating film structurally. Um, it's it's one I, I yeah absolutely love and uh, and it's so impressive to to see it again and again. Yeah, at the same time, Eduardo's like the only character that you could remotely sort of see yourself as, <laughs> as being, unless you're a true sociopath, in which case get some help. <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway yeah and of course that score i gotta mention that score uh atticus atticus ross and trent Reznor, uh amazing electronic score which uh i'm still on the hunt apparently there's a vinyl version of it oh, somewhere wow. out there i'm still on the hunt for that and you know uh speaking of rooney mara she was she was chosen to be the girl with the dragon tattoo in in david fincher's 2012 film which uh, apparently she had to audition like seven or eight times. It took her two months to land the the role. Uh, Fincher fought for her. He advocated for her. He thought she was right, but he also saw like dozens of other actors. This was kind of, you know, these books were super popular and and they'd already made a Swedish series of the movies and that had turned, uh, you know, that, that had also sort of entered the, the kind of consciousness so so for i think the one mark against the american version of the girl in the dragon dragon tattoo is when it arrived it the books i think were on their way down in terms of of uh interest it kind of starting to wane and i think that's why there was never a, a sequel to this i i think they hoped that there would be that there would be a whole series but um i don't think it did as well as they hoped and hence there was there's only one but boy uh it's it's a terrific thriller and it is gripping it's long but it absolutely takes you along with it it's so complex in terms of its story um yeah i i i really i really love the girl with dragon tattoo in a way that i think um uh i don't know it, it just it surprises me how much how involved I get with it when I rewatch it, even though I know exactly what's coming. Well, there was a sequel, The Girl in the Spider's Web in 2018 with completely different creative team and and, and, and cast, right. uh, which I actually did rewatch. And uh, although at first I thought, did I actually see this? <laughs> and it turns out that I'd totally forgotten that I'd seen it before. And that's how memorable it is, uh, which is not very. And it's actually based on the fourth book, which wasn't actually written by Stieg Larsson, who wrote, the first three novels so it and it's it's kind of like uh you know the returning to a carbon copy version of something that you really right. enjoyed the first time around it's a lot less subtle and a lot less political in a way that the the first three are and and, and yeah girl with the dragon tattoo is a great thriller uh it's it's certainly more cinematic than the original um swedish film which is you know but it's also more streamlined it, it, they they've carved away a lot of the plot points for for sort of story momentum but it's yeah it's 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 a wonderful thriller from start to finish and and one of the rare sort of english language remakes that that works as well as if maybe even not a little better than its original yeah no absolutely and uh um i i i enjoy that it's uh it's got this obviously this sort of almost horror element to the thriller aspect. Uh, Elizabeth Salander is such a great character. She's she's really someone you can root for as she kind of, you know, she she's someone who is um, she's not a goth for effect. Her her look is her piercings and the bleached eyebrows. It's crafted to help keep people away. So when she gets close to the lead character or, or the second pair paired lead. Uh, Played uh, by uh, Daniel Craig, Mikael Blomqvist, the um, the journalist who's been hired by this wealthy Swedish family to investigate 
a cold case gone long cold, uh, the disappearance and potential murder of a, uh, of a, of a woman who vanished, you know, 50 years before, um, the connection between the two leads, uh, really is kind of wonderful. And it, uh, Mara's character, uh, Salander, she, uh, she gets, she begins to show vulnerability as we go along, even though she's deeply damaged by her difficult childhood. And, um, you know, and by the end, it becomes almost a character study of her. Once we've cleared away all the plot relating to all these other, the, the main, uh, uh, you know, investigation. Once that is solved, it's. I found myself feeling quite sad um, and uh, moved by her sort of plight. In the end, she she has a huge amount of success. She gets control of her life finally. But then, uh, you know, she opens herself up to to um, being hurt by this man who she's come to care for. Anyway, it's. I thought that was quite lovely. Yeah, and so. I don't know. Do you want to? Do you have anything more you want to talk about on Dragon Tattoo, or shall we move on to Gone? Girl? Let's move on to Gone Girl. We're rapidly running out of time here, and Gone Girl. I probably have the most stuff written down of any of these films, but it's uh, it, it's certainly a film that gives you a lot to chew on. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Gone Girl is uh, again based on a very successful book, and uh, it stars Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike, who are both quite good in the film as a as a couple who. Uh, who you know where where she vanishes amy she vanishes and he is looking to see what happened to her and there's an investigation they live in missouri and then it starts to look like he may be responsible for her her disappearance and they had not such a perfect marriage and it becomes a uh, an investigation of um you know american media and celebrity in a way that's really clever and very funny darkly funny but it's also very very smart in how it uses the unreliable narrator you start to realize as you go into it watching it a second time i thought oh okay this is really clear to me now how much one of the characters is an unreliable narrator and uh that is very well done it it really lends itself to fincher's fascination with the dark underbelly i thought yeah it's a sour portrayal of marriage as you're gonna find in a movie maybe or you know maybe since war of the roses the danny devito comedy yeah with michael <laughs> douglas from the game of course and uh it's it's just a it's just a jewel of construction in the in the the way that the plot is set up and then is completely taken apart again i mean you're kind of it's kind of like you're watching a match a watchmaker at work uh, over the course of this film watching everything get taken apart and then put back together in new ways and then for a really dark finale um and it's you know it's really hard to talk about this film in, in in a lot of detail without spoiling any of it. And it's always fun to watch Ben Affleck get put through the ringer in the way that he is here. And 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 Rosamund Pike is is uh, is completely fascinating as a woman that you know you alternate from having sympathy for to completely despising. You know you go back and forth and and then in the middle of it all is this completely unexpected performance by Tyler Perry as Tanner Bolt, the genius. Uh, genius lawyer for um for disgraced husbands uh you know he's uh which was a totally unexpected treat in the middle of this uh you know puzzle piece of a film oh yeah absolutely i uh i it was great to see him and again it's you know more more uh um uh, i guess uh credit to fincher and his casting he he chooses really interesting people to populate his films and and also Carrie Coon who plays Margot or Go as she's often called she is uh she's uh, Ben Affleck's character's um you know sister uh twin sister 
and uh, and she becomes the the character who he can talk to and who he can trust in, even though clearly he doesn't tell her everything. Uh, as we we realize as we go through this, yeah, I I think um, <laughs> I think Gone Girl is maybe the uh, one of those uh, really perverse. Speaking of perversity, one of those perverse date movies, <laughs> um, and it uh, you know I think I think a lot of I think he was. The film was criticized when it came out for being, you know, a bit misogynist. But, you know, I, I suspect, and, and what I've read is that, in fact, the book was very popular with women, and uh, and that the story is very popular with women. Um, and uh, I just, anyway, I find that an interesting dichotomy. That uh, you know, this is at the heart of this is a woman. It's a woman. It's her story, and uh, and it's uh, and the 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 screen right the the screenplay was written by the author of the book so that as as well is an interesting that doesn't happen every day um you know with the adaptations of uh of popular novels to the screen so uh anyway i i uh i i think um yeah i think uh gone girl has a lot to say about america and uh it it is is maybe a little cynical but uh but enormously entertaining Well, that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears, wrapping up our look at the films of David Fincher. Hope you found a reason to return to his compelling and always watchable work. You can find us online uh, on the Facebook page for Lens Me Your Ears. And we also have a Twitter account at Lens Me Your Ears um, on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm also on Twitter uh, by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And thanks, as always, to the people at CKDU for the use of their production facilities when we're able to use them in non-quarantine times, and also for airing us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m., and also the Village Soundcast Network crew for putting the final sheen on the show and getting it hosted up on the podcast platforms. Thanks, as always, and we'll see you next week. That's a wrap. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.